Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why are monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. What about any, any uh, stories about science that have been happening in this last week? I well, found a story about someone who's worked out a way of making a GPS system for the whole galaxy. Wow. Um, now, the way GPS normally works is that you um, basically you've got loads of transmitters on satellites flying around the Earth, um, and they're sending out lots of pulses. Mm-hmm. And by measuring the difference in time between the pulses that, as they get to you, um, because the pulses travel as radio waves at the speed of light, they take the satellites a little bit further away. It takes a little bit longer to get to you, and if it's closer, it takes a little bit le- less time to get mm-hmm. to you. With lots of different satellites, you can work out where you are. Now, um, Berthold Cole from the Observatoire de Paris Ooh. has worked out a way of doing this for the whole galaxy. Now, this um, ba- this needs things called pulsars. Now, these are stars um, which are up there all the time. They're already there. Um, they're, ne- they're called neutron stars. They're little, they're, they're, they're little remnants of a huge star explosion, incredibly dense. And they're spinning incredibly fast, up to 7,000 times every second. This is something as massive as the sun, but it's spinning 7,000 times every second. It's very small. And they emit very regular pulses of radio waves. And then essentially just like the satellites which are orbiting the Earth. And scientists have been able to predict very, very accurately where these pulses are going to arrive. And he reckons that if, if we can get a slightly better idea of how when these pulses are going to arrive and predict them slightly better, you can work out to where you are within the whole galaxy to a metre, which is really quite impressive. Our first question then for Dr. Dave to ask the naked scientist comes from Nick via email. Um, He says, uh, is it possible to break a glass or similar object with sound? If so, how does that work? What a brilliant question, Nick. Thank you very much indeed. The simple answer is yes, you can. Um, but you can't break any old glass. Um, the cheapo wine glasses which you got um, get from te- Tesco's for a pound or for six, whatever, aren't going to work. What you need is really good quality, really expensive glasses. And the reason is that it, it works a bit like if you're pushing a swing. Um, if you push someone on a swing, if you push them on the swing exactly at the same speed as they want to swing at, then the, their swing gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You're pushing in the direction to increase the size of the swing all the time, and their swing gets bigger and bigger and bigger till eventually they fall off, if you're that enthusiastic. Mm. Now, you can do exactly the same thing with a glass. If you um, flick a glass, it vibrates at a certain pitch. That means it's vibrating at a certain speed, so it has a speed it wants to vibrate at. So if you can vibrate it at that speed um, with some vibration, sounds a form of vibration, uh, the vibration of the glass will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, in fact, I've, I've done this a few times. I've built, I've built several pieces of kit to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a decent wine glass, you can actually, if you slow down the, the movement, or apparently slow down the movement using a strobe light, you can actually see the glass moving. And it actually, yeah. actually, the edge of the glass moves by about five millimetres in and out. And you can actually see it changing from an oval in one direction to an oval in, a, in the other direction, slowed down with the strobe light. That, I think is more incredible than actually smashing it. And if you turn up the um, volume high enough and get the pitch exactly right, you've got to get it to within about a tenth of a hertz. So one part in 600. So you've got incredibly good, really, really seriously get the pitch exactly right. And then this vibration builds up and up and up. 
till eventually the glass can't take it anymore and it just shatters. Okay. All but right. cheap glasses, cheap, um, if you ping glasses. them, they don't, they don't ping yeah, for very yeah. long. Real crystal. You need real crystal, which ping for a very, very long time, and that means that they, it doesn't lose much energy yeah. because if it just pings for a short amount of time, it's losing energy. And if it's not losing much energy, then you can build the vibration up and up and up until eventually it breaks. Yeah, all right. Okay, be careful then. Don't let Dr. Dave be singing with his powerful vibrations near your crystals. Uh, Dr. Dave, our question that John put to us by email, uh, do you believe in the power of crystals? Well, a crystal is basically um, a substance which is made up of a regularly repeating structure on sort of an atomic or molecular level. So, I mean, ice is a form of crystal. Um, some things, when they um, solidify, don't form crystals. Um, glass can crystal the stuff which in glass can crystallize, but it takes a very, very long time to crystallize. It takes millions of years at room temperature, so it starts off it's all a bit disordered. Um, I mean, crystals have all sorts of useful properties, and if you could call it powers, I mean, um, crystals are necessary in order to make a computer. If you, um, you have very perfect, incredibly perfect crystals of silicon um, with almost no defects at all, yeah. which means that they're very, very predictable and you can make the transistors inside the computer chips. And they have all sorts of other useful properties. Um, although I think what he's probably alluding to is all of the um, sort of new agey kind of associations with crystals that they can heal and do all sorts of other things. Um, I... I certainly don't think that crystals in general can do that. Um, I, I've, I've never seen any evidence for the kind of energies which they talk about being used to heal people with or make the, uh, having all sorts of interesting effects. Right, OK, good evidence. What a great scientific term that is. Robin and Milton moving swiftly on. Um, the question, Dr Dave, can you comment on the theory that if global warming happened in this country, it would actually get colder because we would be losing the Gulf Stream? Yes, this is definitely a theory which has been put about. It's certainly conceivable. Um, I don't. I think the present um, consensus is it's probably not going to happen or, or at least we're not going to get much, very, very cold anyway. Mm. Um, what ha the Gulf Stream is a stream of warm water coming up from the Gulf of Mexico um, all the way across the Atlantic and it hits the north of the, of the UK, um, the west side of the UK um, and that actually keeps us far warmer than we would be otherwise if you look at the other side of the Atlantic over in Lab which is at the same latitude as, mm. as us, it's Labrador um, there's icebergs floating around in the sea you have very, very, very cold winters getting down to minus 30, minus 40. Yeah. And it's generally a very unpleasant place to be in the winter. And the same of all of the, if you get into the centre of the continent um, in um, Russia, Russia at the same latitude as us, it gets down to minus 30, minus 40 during the winter. Um, so, and the this Gulf Stream, is the reason is we, we aren't like that is because the Gulf Stream is moving a huge amount of heat energy up to us, the equivalent of a thousand nuclear power stations, just heating up the whole of New Northern Europe. Um, and if, I think maybe even a bit more than that, possibly even a million nuclear power stations, it's an immense amount of energy. Mm. Um, part of the thing which drives it is that when ice, when ice forms in the winter in over the Arctic, um, it, um, salty water doesn't freeze um, so the only thing which freezes is fresh water so the water left is even saltier than it would be normal, normally uh -huh. so you get extra salty water that's denser than normal water so it sinks and that sinks um, and f sort of flows down the bottom of the Atlantic um, and then warm water moves up to replace it so if this 
um, if the, we stop if the um, North Atlantic stopped freezing, then the idea is that it would make the, the Gulf Stream certainly weaker. Um, I think the present, I, the most recent thing I've seen on this is it probably wouldn't actually stop it. Although the UK might get cool, slightly colder or not as much warmer as it ought to have done. Mm. Um, I mean, it's certainly possible. The whole thing, the problem with the climate is it's entirely is an incredibly complicated system, and if you poke it, you. It's very, very, very hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, we can tell on a global scale roughly that if, if you um, put up lots of carbon dioxide, you get more heat trapped inside the Earth. Globally, the Earth is going to get warmer. But what's going to happen locally, it's almost impossible to predict. And that's what that's one of the really bad things about global warming mm. because you can't predict 100 mm. years ahead as what the climate's going to be. It might get wetter, it might get drier in all sorts of different places. Mm. I mean, people have done incredibly huge, huge computers to predict these things, but they don't really know. And that's actually one of the reasons why it's one of the best arguments I can see for trying to do something about it and try and stopping it. Because sure. if you can predict what's going to happen, you can adjust, you can rebuild, you can start farming in other places and things like that. But yeah. if you don't know what's going to happen. All right, let's go to our next question here by email. This is from uh, Alan, who says, um, how do submarines float at a fixed depth? I've often wondered that. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. The problem is that a sub- if you imagine a submarine, it's got tanks. The reason where, where it sinks is it um, fills its tanks with water. So you've probably still got some air in the top of them, and the way if it wants to float a bit more, it pumps more air in there. That pushes the water out. It gets less dense and it floats. Hmm. The problem is if you've got the submarine beautifully set up so it has neutral buoyancy, so it's staying in one place, if it gets a little bit deeper then the air inside it is going to get compressed because there's more pressure. The air is going to get smaller. That means there's less buoyancy. So the submarine is going to sink some more. That means the air is going to compress even more, which mm. means it will sink more and more and more. Mm. Similarly, if it floats up a bit, the air, there's less pressure squashing that air. So the air expands, which means it has more buoyancy. So the submarine floats even more than it would do. So it floats more and more and more. So the whole system is entirely unstable. If it, if it gets slightly deeper, it's going to get more deeper. If it gets slightly shallower, it gets more shallower. And the only way to deal with it is by keeping making corrections. Um, in the Second World War, the, I think it was one of the officers' jobs, possibly even the first officer, but definitely a fairly senior officer's job, was to keep at, in flooding and emptying tanks inside the submarine to try and keep it at a constant depth and a constant angle. Um, and he had to keep making adjustments all the time, otherwise you either float or sink. Um, and I think probably today they've got computerized systems to do this. But yeah, there's, naturally, you're either going to float or you're going to sink. You don't stay in the middle. Mm. Scary stuff. We need some. Dun, dun. One of those sounds. Right, OK. Um, hi, Dave and Sue. Um, this one is for you, Dave, because I can't possibly explain this. Could you explain length contradiction with respect to Lorentz experiments? Sorry, Lorentz contraction with respect oh, to... Oh, right, OK. Um, this is a property of relativity. Um, there's basically um, the way the universe seems to behave is that um, when the light is always going at the speed of light, um, it doesn't matter. So however fast you go, light always goes at the speed of light. Yeah. So you can go in any direction at any speed and you will always see light going at the speed of light. Mm. Um, now, that doesn't work. If, 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 with the way you expect the universe to function, that doesn't work at all. Um, because um, if if you if because normally you expect if you if you go if something's moving to um, going away from you at ten miles an hour and you mm. go towards it at five miles an hour, it's only going away from you at five miles an hour now. Yeah. 
Um, but light doesn't do that. It carries on going at the speed of light. And it seems to be that everything else in the universe kind of alters, the way you view the universe alters to make that true. Um, so the speed things happen at, the way time flows changes to make that happen, and the distances you um, see things are that see things are apart, distancing things are apart changes as well. Um, this effect called Lorentz con- contraction. Um, the exact, I mean, the exact details of it are quite complicated, and I can't really go into it now. But yeah, it's a consequence of the speed of light always being constant. And the other assumption that Einstein had to make, which seems to hold as well, is that things things always happen in the same order. Um, and so things, so if something causes something else, that still happens however fast you're going in whatever directions. Um, and so, um, yes, one of the things which comes out of that is things appear to be shorter than they are. Wow. Dave, well done. I can see your, your cogs in your brain working then. That was fantastic. Well done to you. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. To the email then, Dr. Dave, James in Tebersham says, Is glass a liquid? I thought it was, although my physics teacher thinks differently. Dave. Glass is sometimes called a supercooled liquid um, because of the way the atoms are arranged. is a bit like a liquid if you cooled it very quickly and sort of froze them all into position. Um, it, they're not organised. They're not um, in a regular lattice like uh, over a large scale like a, um, like a crystal is. Yeah. And so it has some of the properties of the liquid. And essentially, as you, if it's warm, it will flow. And as you cool it down, it just sort of flows slower and slower and slower and slower and slower and slower as it gets colder and colder and colder and colder. So in some senses, it is still a liquid in that it could still flow, um, flow to some extent as a pane of glass. However, the rate at which it would flow is immensely slow. It would probably take millions, if not billions, of years for mm. it to flow anything you'd, any distance you'd notice. In fact, in that period, it would actually naturally crystallise of its own accord mm. quicker than it would flow. So you, you probably wouldn't ever see anything flowing. Um, and how, and the, some people say that if you look at old windows, um, the bottom of the windows are wider than the top of the windows. Um, and they use this as a, an example for showing that glass is flowing. Actually, that doesn't work. It's a property of how they used to make the glass. Because the way they used to make window panes, and the yes. reason why they could only make small window panes was the only way they could make big flat pieces of glasses was basically by blowing a bottle yeah. and making it very flat, make it, basically making a big flat bottle yeah. and then chopping it up. Oh. And if you take a big flat bottle... Um, any bit of glass you chop out um, coming from near the centre of the bottle is going to be thicker than at the outside. Um, so you ha- don't have a even... So the glass isn't the same thickness everywhere. So you're going to have a thick end and a, and a thin end from your in your piece of glass. And, to do, and people normally put the thick end at the bottom because it feels more stable. Mm. Um, and so normally, sometimes you see one with the pane the wrong way up, mm. the fat end at the top. Mm. Um, so... In some senses, glass is a liquid, but they're f- really quite abstract. To all intents and purposes, it's a solid. Right. Okay. Now, uh, John says, how do countries know when an alien nation is testing, say, nuclear bombs? 
Okay, I guess this is to do with the nuclear bomb which the North Koreans set off recently. Mm. If you set off a nuclear bomb on the surface of the Earth, um, it has a variety of things, special things which happen to it. One of them is it's an, basically it's an incredibly bright flash from somewhere yeah. on the Earth. Yeah. There's virtually nothing which can produce a flash that bright with that many X-rays. And it also produces lots of X-rays and gamma rays, mostly X-rays. Um, there's nothing that can produce that many X-rays and produce that bright, brighter flash on the Earth, even including lightning. It's far brighter than lightning. Mm. So there are satellites which are orbiting the Earth all the time, looking at the surface for nuclear explosions. They know what the signature of a nuclear explosion is. If they see them, they'll send they'll send messages back to um, the um, strategic commands. Both the Russians have got them and the Americans. I wouldn't surprise you the Chinese were putting them up as well. Um, and so if anyone sets off a bomb on the surface, you'd know about it very quickly. Um, if it's underground, in some ways it's slightly harder. But if it's underground, if you set off a big a big nuclear bomb, a huge amount of energy released, um, you go from something which is very small, it tries to get a lot bigger very quickly. Sure. That shakes the Earth. And it actually shakes the Earth in a different way to an earthquake. Because all the earth, earthquakes um, are caused by um, a rock sliding past yes. one another yeah. so if you imagine the fault on one side of the fault the rock is moving one way and on the other side the ro- rock is moving the other way yeah. so if you look at the the waves in the earth they, in one, on one side of the fault they start off going north yeah. on the other side of the fault they start off going south yeah. and if you can look at seismometers in, around the earth and work out where the earthquake was and the direction of the fault However, a nuclear bomb, everything goes outwards to start with. So if you look at, if you've got lots of seismometers all the way around the Earth, if you see a pattern whereby um, the first movement in the first wave, the first movement is outwards in the same, it's sort of outwards all the way around it. You know that something's exploded. If it's got lots of power to it, there's nothing it can be apart from a nuclear bomb, really. Mm. Mm. All right. Um, he also goes on to say, if an alien force was was able to disturb the movement of the Gulf Stream, would that be the beginning of the end? Um, it depends what you mean by the end. It would just by stopping it, um, you'd make uh, Northern Europe colder and somewhere else warmer. Yeah. Um, and it would it would make this country a lot less pleasant to live in. Certainly, uh, I don't think it would necessarily destroy the Earth or anything very major. Um, and it would it would cool certainly cool down Northern Europe a lot. Um, whether it would cool down the rest of the world, I'm not sure. It certainly wouldn't completely wipe us out because there have been lots of times when the whole of Northern Europe has been frozen. Um, there have been many ice ages and the Earth has got out of them before. So in, over periods of tens of thousands of years, it certainly wouldn't be a major problem. The next one that we have here from Adrian, who says, could a time machine ever become a reality? The simple answer is that according to the physics that we know is right there's the only ways which you could possibly travel in time involve materials which we don't think which we don't we can't find we haven't found we don't think they exist there are a couple of there are very people occasionally come up with ideas of making wormholes which essentially mean that um if you somehow manage to loop make a loop because space is actually not just in three dimensions um the way um sort of cosmologists and um, relativistic physicists think it's called space-time and it includes time. Time is one of the dimensions. It's just we happen to be always moving through it in one direction. Mm. And there are some solutions to general relativity which involve a loop in time. So you could keep on... You could sort of go back and forwards and sort of with some kind of wormhole or some something like that. No one really knows what they would look like. Mm. The only way that you could keep one of these open um, seems to involve 
So some people have come up with ideas which involve materials which have a negative gravitational force, but as far as we know, act in the opposite direction to gravity. Um, so it would repel normal th- normal objects. And as far as we know, there's nothing with that property. Um, so as far as we know, you can't build a time machine. It would also cause all sorts of havoc with the way the universe works. But doesn't mean it isn't, is impossible, but we have no ever, no idea how you would, or as far as we know, you can't. Simon in Norwich, thank you for your question. He says, why is toothpaste with fluoride better for you than without? Basically, on the outside of your teeth, you um, have an extra hard layer, um, which is made out of um, dentine. I, I can't remember. Um, basically, the enamel of your teeth um, can slowly gets eroded all the time chemically and by you make, rubbing against it. And some of the chemical erosion can be replaced, basically, um, with calcium fluoride. Mm. It can sort of essentially dump um, new um, mineral on top of your tooth and fill in the little, tight, little minute little holes in it um, and sort of smooth over them and mean that your tooth um, is much harder for a decay to get in there and the acids to attack, attack it. Um, so basically your teeth last longer, I think... Um, in more detail, you'd probably need to talk to a dentist. One question here, Dave, is um, from um, Likaela. Um, how do we convert sunlight into energy? Okay, um, there's various different ways of converting light into energy. Um, light is basically, it's an electromagnetic wave. Um, that means it's sort of a vibration in the electric and magnetic fields. Um, and so all electric magnetic waves, if they hit something which is charged or, or a magnet, they will apply a force to it. So if, so if you've got something charged, like um, some electrons in a wire, and you hit them with a radio wave, which is another form of light, another form of electromagnetic wave, when the radio wave hits those electrons, they move up and down yeah. with the vibration. And, they, and if that, that wire is attached to a radio, that electric current can be detected, and that's how everyone's listening to us at the moment on the radio. Yeah. Light is just a much, much faster vibration, about 10,000 um, billion vibrations every second, uh, if not, yeah, if possibly even 100,000 vibra- uh, billion vibrations every second, maybe 100 trillion vibrations every second, um, roughly in the region of light. Um, so because the vibrations are so fast that you can't really detect big um, movements up and down a wire but on very very small things with charged objects like atoms they can absorb this vibration it makes atoms vibrate or there's more, more often the electrons in the atoms vibrate um, so the electrons um, can gain energy um, now normally if you just stand out in the sun most of that energy just goes into um, giving the en- electrons more energy mm. and that's if all the electrons have got lots of more energy in random directions that's just heat so mm. you heat up um, if you've got very carefully designed structures, like um, in a leaf of a plant, in the chloroplast of a cl- plant, the chlorophyll inside there is a very um, beautifully, uh, essentially, en- beautifully, if it, was, it had been engineered, you call it beautifully engineered, um, pe- molecule which takes the energy from the light and absorbs that and gives some electrons extra energy and then use that eventually through lots and lots of steps to make sugar, which is a form which is stores the energy, chemical energy. Um, um, and also, if you have a solar cell, you can take that energy. Um, you can st- essentially strip an electron away from an atom, and then that electron can 
get caught into one side of a circuit and then it has to go all the way around the circuit to come back again and meet at the, the hole which it produced. Um, and so the energy is caught in, the, in that electron in the solar cell. Mm. Um, so there's lots of different ways, but fundamentally when light or any electromagnetic wave hits something charged, it gives it energy. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>